now serving butter and bacon. The good stuff. So, um, how was your commute this morning? Because mine was two hours and 15 minutes, and it's normally an hour and 10. Mine took zero. Oh. Working from home today. Oh. You and well, Dean share that sim- in common. I had a similar commute today. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was wonderful. This is usually the worst time of year with school back in session. And, um, you know, the day is getting shorter. And so out here in L.A., this is the worst time. And it would normally, if I went during uh, rush hour, it would take about an hour to an hour and 15. Uh, But today I'm working from home. That's fantastic. So, yeah, uh, yeah, I had a a long, terrible, painful, non-moving commute. (laughs) So I am very jealous of you. But uh, it appears we have guests. Hello. Welcome to Butter and Bacon, where we discuss the good stuff of Disney, and we are honored to have Tom Morris with us, who was an Imagineer on the original Imagination Pavilion of Epcot Center. Tom, why don't you say hello to the friendly people who happen to have stopped by? Hello, everyone out there. Good to see you. And we also have Dean. Yeah, I, I'm not even sure I get third billing on this episode, so... I hesitated <laughs> to intro myself first. <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Tom was gracious enough. Um, I followed him on Twitter for a while, and a couple weeks ago started posting some rather interesting, uh, detailed information about the genesis of the uh, attraction, um, Journey into Imagination. So, uh, at what point did you find out about Imagination as a project? Well, I had um, recently started at WED Imagineering. Um, and I was working um, in the show set design department. Okay. And I believe I was working on um, just kind of infill projects on, um, you know, I did some set designs for the world of motion mm. um, and helped Claude Coates work out a scene uh, in there, the hot air balloon scene. Oh, I love uh, that. I love, the, I love the pig. Yeah. <laughs> pig in the basket. Yeah. Yeah, and I worked with um, a little bit with Mark Davis on another scene, which was the um, the wheel, you know, mm. the invention of the wheel with the the Greek or Roman temple in the background, and I think it was a Chinese pagoda. And those were the f- actual first designs that I um, ever worked on there. And then um, it was about that time in the in the process that Kodak approached Disney. I think they had been in discussions for a while, but um, sometime around the end of 1979, I think, or the summer of 79, it became real, and they wanted to start up this project, and Tony Baxter was assigned the lead on that, and Tony selected me to be on the um, team of people that would try to figure out what an imagination pavilion would be. And I remember the, the original name for it was images and imagination. So that was the way to kind of tie in the notion of what Kodak, um, you know, is interested in, which is imagery. Mm-hmm. So it was the idea was to to somehow address in an entertaining way how images um, inspire imagination and vice versa. Oh, that's great. So, uh, what was your what was your role on the team? I mean, other than you know, kind of the uh, 
uh, umbrella term of creative. Um, you know, like, did you did you have a specific role, or was it a lot more fluid than that? It was more fluid, but I was in the I was a representative of the show set department, which meant that at some point in time I would need to lay out um, the pavilion, lay out um, all the show areas, the ride, um, and whatever other areas considered show. Um, I would be laying that out and doing set designs um, for some of the scenes. And so what Tony selected me to do was, I actually took uh, part in the early story discussions. Mm. Uh, there was a, uh, it was larger than a handful. There were probably 10 people involved in the early, you know, very blue sky conceptual uh, period of that. It was um, Barry Braverman, Steve Kirk, Jeff Burke, um, even Bob Rogers, I believe, uh, for a couple months before he left Disney and formed his own company. Um, I'm trying to think who else at that early stage was involved. Um, oh, Dan Gouzet, who did those beautiful, beautiful um, renderings, and later Andy Gaskell, who did those phenomenal um, renderings uh, inside at the interior of the attraction of what mm -hmm. it uh, could possibly be. Um, later, you know, we brought on more people like Skip Lang and, and many others. But in that initial period, it was, I think it was that kind of consistently, it was that group of people. Uh, Tad Stones, I think, was another one, come to think of it. He was uh, brought over from animation. There were a couple of folks that were brought over from the animation uh, at the studio. Because it sounds very 1950s. It was. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was still kind of the heyday, and um, so Tad um, helped kind of storyboard scenarios that Figment would be involved in. He was really the only person who could draw, you know, animals. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve Kirk, who came up with Figment, um, Steve Kirk and Tony. Um, came up with Figment and he first drew him and um, and then I think Dreamfinder was a uh, was a holdover from an earlier project Discovery Bay mm -hmm. that Steve and Tony were working on um, but we needed someone who could kind of day-to-day -day, day in and day out come up with gag ideas and situation ideas for Dreamfinder and Figment so Tad having come from animation um, was the guy working on that Okay, and it sounds like, uh, I mean, from, from what you've said, that the story for World of Motion was being developed kind of concurrently or maybe a little bit in advance. Was there, was there definitely an, a uh, strong desire to tie together the storytelling methods, even though it was a different topic? Um, it, just, just from hearing you talk, it's you know, like setting up Figment with gags is very much in that Mark Davis mode of you definitely go from scene to scene and each one tells its own single distinct story as part of the whole. I would say it came a little bit after. Okay. Um, I think it was, you know, the points that we wanted to make were that creativity um, is a combination of, of practical know-how, science and engineering, but it's just as equally important as art, entertainment, inspiration. So it was kind of a story about the yin and the yang of, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, and so uh, Dreamfinder represented the rational, you know, um, left <laughs> brain 
uh, side of the equation. And Figment was was the right side of the brain that was, you know, uh, interested in the creation and the um, imagining and the ideation. But you know, the point that's made at the end of the ride is it's it's not either or. It's not um, you know all of these qualities are not mutually exclusive to one another. Right. So if you have a lot of imagination, at some point you have to take a step and do something. You actually have to have practical knowledge, otherwise your imagination just stays in your head. And if all you have is practical knowledge, math and science, you know how far are you going to get if you can't imagine uh, what could be? So I think that that was always from the very beginning the the greater story that we wanted to tell, and then it was just a question of how to tell it. And um, and then I think we broke it down into topics like um, literature and the arts, performing arts, science, um, you know, entertainment, um, inspiration. And so those were kind of topical things. And and um, Andy Gaskell, I remember, was the one who kind of first rendered those scenes those um, you know those basic ideas and they were kind of collagey montagey although they were placed in actual um, as he as he painted them they were they were um, they weren't painted so in such a way in such a blue sky kind of a way that they couldn't be created so and Andy it was also from animation right um, and he's now at DreamWorks um, but so that's kind of how we did it and then we went once we kind of decided on what the topics were going to be and what those environments were going to be and, and stylistically how they were going to be expressed i think then we went into the business of okay so what will dream finder and figment be doing in those scenes oh, that's really neat now now i now i have a chicken or egg question yeah which came first the parameters of the building or the design of the building they came at the same time because mm. I, I was doing that. Um, so in the conceptual phase of the project, um, we did not have an architect. I think all the architects were busy um, on other projects trying to get, you know, transportation and energy and the land pavilion. Um, and so... <laughs> figure out Spaceship Earth. Figure out Spaceship <laughs> Earth. And so I think, you know, we were going to go out and get a... I think they were looking for an architect, and in the meantime, that was one of the skill sets I had was kind of spatial design. I wasn't an architect, mm -hmm. per se, um, and hadn't even really taken architecture other than classes in high school. But I knew about architecture, and I knew how to arrange a building. And so as I laid out the ride, um, I laid out the building at the same time. Okay. And, and um, and I was kind of proposing ideas for what the building might look like, but then Dan Gouthay really cracked the code on it when he came up with the silver halide crystal idea. And uh, I think I had worked on some crystal ideas too, but they weren't as handsome as, as what he come up with. Right, and, and if I remember correctly, crystals were a big part of an, an, an initial version or another version of the land pavilion. Is that yes, right? That's right? Yeah. Yeah, so, that, you know, very crystalline on that side of Epcot Center. That's right. Um, and by that time, that crystal idea had been abandoned for the Land Pavilion. And uh, we kind of picked it up a little bit with, um, you know, with imagination. And in fact, I, I think I was proposing 
some crystalline ideas because I liked what I had seen on the land pavilion. Mm -hmm. uh, and Tony was kind of hesitant because Tony had been involved in that and he saw how expensive it was going to be for the land. <laughs> it's always is trying to be the uh, dutiful project manager of, yeah, this is great. However, <laughs> I know some realities of this design. I, so I don't even think he looked at my designs for it, which was fine because they, they weren't as good as what Dan Guzzetti did anyways. When Dan came up with his um, initial sketches, it was like, okay, we'll do a little bit of crystals, you know. So, um, so there's, you know, not nearly to the extent that the land building would have been. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you had some uh, spatial design. Uh, what, what is your background? Like what, what kind of education did you get? What led you to join with uh, Imagineering in the first place? It's a typical Imagineering story where um, <laughs> what I got into wasn't what I was studying. Um, so I was, I was studying in college uh, film and communications, advertising, and I was taking illustration classes. Um, and the way I got into into WED, though, was through my high school. <laughs> um, what I had done in high school, which was some really good drafting, and I took three years of drafting in high school. So that's how I knew about architecture, and I knew you know, the fundamentals of it. Uh, but I also learned to be a really, really good draftsperson. And so they were hiring, you know, they were really ramping up for Epcot and for Tokyo Disneyland. And I was working at Disneyland as a ride operator. And they... Oh, fun. Yeah. Which attraction? I was in Tomorrowland, so I was mostly working on submarines and Autopia and starting to work on Space Mountain, which had just opened. And... Um, so they had a program where you could where you could put on file your resume for future jobs within the organization. So I just put my portfolio in there, kind of as a placeholder, and all it was was stuff I had done in high school. Mm -hmm. And about three or four months later, they tracked me down and said, "We need you at WET." <laughs> and work for a year or so, get some on-the-job training. Um, which I was hesitant to do because I was in the process of transferring uh, to either UCLA or USC to take film or theater. And I said, okay, I'll do this because it's maybe a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity mm -hmm. uh, you know, to go work on Epcot, Walt's Last Dream. And um, so I did that. I thought it would be for a half a year or a year or maybe at the most a year and a half, but it just lasted forever it's, yeah it's lasted a little bit longer than that <laughs> back to school uh, yeah and and what i the first thing i did i went into was ride layout on this imagination so i had you know i didn't know anything about ride engineering i just knew about uh, you know i knew about um basic geometry you know i had mm -hmm. geometry knowledge spatial knowledge and um, I could work a calculator, unlike maybe some of my colleagues who weren't so into the into the math side of things. But I, it was just to figure out THRCs and the basic metrics of an attraction. Um, they're kind of the fundamentals of ride layout. You have to know vehicle speeds, what speeds things are going, and everything's kind of interrelated. So you have to, and it's nothing tricky. It's not trigonometry or anything like that. It would be if it's a roller coaster, but right. Uh, but this is a you know it was a flat ride that um, was going at a 
pretty much at a prescribed speed. Later, we changed it so that it had variable speed. But I just started getting into this that you know, thing that I had to learn by myself how to do it, and I did. Right, and and for those of you who don't know, the uh, THRCs are the theoretical ride hourly capacity. That's right. And theoretical so, hourly ride capacity. I got it. I get it yeah, mixed up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now it's you know OHRC and guest carried, and there's all sorts of different metrics. Um, back then it was you know it was kind of THRC that we were chasing, and we knew it had to have a high THRC. So when um, the idea was suggested that we somehow bookend the attraction with a moment, you know, with a kind of introduction and then a wrap up and then a ride in between. Mm -hmm. and, and the ride would kind of surprise you in between. You didn't know you were going to be on a ride. That was kind of the basic initial idea. And then it morphed. And, um, and so we ended up with the introduction moment, the three and a half minutes on the turntable, where you get an idea of kind of what, what the attraction's all about. And, um, and that required a load station, you know, and how are we going to load how many people and so you know involved with that were sight lines for that turntable you wanted to get as many people on that turntable as possible but sight lines were an issue sure um so we came up with this strange seven passenger vehicle which the only reason we would have selected seven you know normally we would do four or six or eight but this was seven because it had to do with the way the vehicles rotated they were kind of teardrop shaped or egg shaped in plan and that allowed us to get them as close together as possible, um, which factored in later in the load area um, where you want vehicles to be kind of, you know, as close together as possible so that they can slow down um, to a speed where we can, um, you know, safely get people on board. So I think I, I showed a turntable idea where there was actually a turntable to load. Oh, interesting. Okay. So. so yeah, a little bit more like um, the people mover. Yeah, exactly. And it was going to be much bigger than that, though. And so, yeah. um, because the thing is, you've got a gap between trains where you don't on the people mover. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, it was there was just a lot of kind of going back and forth. And eventually, the turntable was abandoned when they figured out a way, or maybe I figured it out. I can't even remember. Um, to that's okay you figured it out i'm sure you figured it out we'll go with that yeah well i, I may have suggested it not knowing if it would work but someone in that's half of my career <laughs> someone in operations validated that it would work so it was we were in a money saving at some point you know we had to cut um and so that's why we needed to cut the second um show turntable at the end and we needed to cut the loading turntable and um, operations determined that if the vehicle slowed down to one and a half feet per second and didn't go any faster, or maybe it was 1.65, something like that, then you don't need a turntable. People can actually walk, mm. you know, it's the speed that people walk up to something. So, um, so that had a ripple effect in terms of spacing, and I think that's how we came up with the teardrop-shaped vehicles that seat seven. <laughs> Yeah. It's very interrelated, but I was that that's how I learned how interrelated everything was. Because I was a little surprised that that ride layout wasn't more of a specialty. It was something that you decided to kind of do, like Claude Coates would do his own ride layouts. 
And, um, but then sometimes someone from a less creative department might do a ride layout and it would be less interesting of a ride. So if you want the ride to be as interesting as possible, then put a creative person on it, but then the creative person has to have the kind of simple rules of thumb, um, you know, and kind of basic math and metrics, uh, knowledge and appreciation. So that was all that. <laughs> so, uh, when you start with WDI, do you show up day one with your, uh, your, your briefcase ready to go and they say, here, Imagination Pavilion, go, or do they <laughs> pair you up with a mentor? Or how does, no, how do you really get started on I that? I would have liked to have, um, been teamed up with a mentor and I, you know, I would have loved to have had more of Claude Coates's, um, and John Henches and, uh, Mark Davis. Mark Davis at the time was retired, but he was back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Tony really became, I guess, my mentor. And, um, so, but when I first started, I wasn't working with Tony. I was, you know, when you first start, you do very rudimentary things. They test you just to make sure that you're like, you know, coordinated and <laughs> make sure your portfolio is yours. Yeah. <laughs> they do it with things like, you know, you mount things or you or you put borders or title blocks on things. And so I was putting title blocks on Tokyo Disneyland plants or something like that. Was, Design the trash can sign. I think I was coloring layouts for Tokyo Disneyland and labeling them or something. Somehow I was working on presentational, you know, like cleaning up and finishing, finishing things up for presentation. Hmm. Then... And then I think it was the transportation pavilion where I first actually designed something, and also the land pavilion. Doris, at the, at the time, her name was Doris Hardoon. She's now Doris Woodward, and she just finished up Shanghai Disneyland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she had me design a phone booth in the farmer's market. So I designed the phone booth. It was there for a long time, until I think just until recently. Now, I'm picturing that you were not on a Joe Rody fact-finding trip around the world to look at world phone booths um, for no. that particular one. Nope. <laughs> I can't remember where I got inspiration. Maybe it was Farmer's Market LA or something. It was just a board and batten um, phone booth. You know, it was, a, it was like you have two phones and then you have a lower phone for disabled and yes. then it has a roof over it and I think I put old billboard, you know, old kind of country billboard lights on it or something. So it, it you know, it was a nice little phone booth. <laughs> <It was, laughs> you never know where inspiration is going to strike. Yeah, but I don't know that I checked out any books for it yet. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I later, you know, came to rely on the library so much, but uh, this one I think I had to just pull out of my head somehow. <laughs> yeah, you weren't exactly Googling it back no. in 1982. Nope. No. <laughs> or 79. or <laughs> trying to think what was. But, um, anyway, that was that was one of the first things I designed. So it's very kind of, you know, scraps. You kind of get little scraps thrown your way. And um, the transportation pavilion, what were those... Um, that's that scene with the, the wheels, the invention of the wheel, and then working with Claude a little bit on the um, on that hot air balloon scene where I proposed, I think, three or four different scenarios for that. And then we ended up with the um, the pig in the basket. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Very happy. 
Yeah. <laughs> I found some of those I found some of those drawings. I've, I've been doing a lot of cleaning out of files that haven't been opened up in 30 years because um, October 3rd is my last day. And so this, this just seemed like a good time to go through all of that and decide what would go on to the um, art library and what will um, stay with me or get trashed. Was this your official retirement or? It's officially my retirement, but okay. I'm, and I'm planning on going on to other things. Well, in that case, congratulations on your retirement. Absolutely. <laughs> no, that's great. Congrats. Thanks. What, what sort of, um, say, you know, ideas, developments did you have back then that just weren't able to be done yet because the technology wasn't there that you might do differently uh, if you had that availability today to, re to redo what you were doing originally? I think we had some big show action moments that we um, kind of dreamed about for a little bit. But with the turntable, we were already putting a big kind of, you know, question mark. Not so much from a technology standpoint because turntables have been around. I mean, they're, they're, they're industrial grade turntables that are um, designed and engineered for aircraft carriers and rotating restaurants. <laughs> it's the same company who made, you know, both of those. And, um, and so it wasn't a question of whether it would turn or not or whether you could get the turntable that big. You know, and could it hold all of that complicated stuff? It was how to sync up the vehicles with it. That was the that was the big issue. So that was kind of enough of a, of an engineering uh, challenge to take on for one attraction. But you know, we had talked and we had talked about doing two of them. Which you know, now knowing what I know now, <laughs> I can understand what the issue you know for that would be. And we even considered it. A double deck turntable, so that the oh, second wow. was actually part of it. It was all the same turntable. Um, so that was something that we had considered, and I had proposed um, a scene where you would stop and the ceiling would open up and reveal the sky. Um, but that was, you know, also a little bit too much. I don't think there was any single technology that was beyond its time. It's just when you bundle so many of them together into one system, you start taxing the system. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, another though, I do remember like there were little things like I, I so wanted the crystals to have this kind of rainbow scopic um, quality to them so that, you know, from certain angles you catch a rainbow in the glass. And believe it or not, that really wasn't available back then it was just starting you know they were just starting to get mylars um that would do that but you know with the mylar peel would it yellow what would mm -hmm. happen um now how would you clean it i mean it, that that's the first thing that comes to mind how would you clean that like 80 feet up in the air if well, it did get dirty it's glass and so it's you know um it does have to be, I don't know if it has to be cleaned a lot because it rains a lot in yes, that's true. Florida and there's not a lot of smog, which is what causes the streaking. Uh, and if and if there was, it would get blown out by a hurricane. So. <laughs> so it's not like in California where you have dust and smog and dryness and lack of rain. Hmm. Uh, so it was less of an issue, um, but... You know, there just wasn't there wasn't anything around that would give us that rainbow in there. Um, we thought about painting it in, which uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, it's just 
it had to be elusive. Like you can only catch it in certain angles, sort of a thing. Yeah, the so, BFA in me is cringing just at that yeah. thought. But now they have, you know, there are metals that are etched where you can get that. And the mylars are better now too, I think, where they would last. Um, I don't know how long they would last. But they might last 20 years, but you know, eventually you have to, you have a big problem scraping that off and putting new mylar. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was a challenge. That was one of them. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I, you know, it was mainly the turntable and the ride system, which was variable speed which hadn't really been done except for the people mover. And we were using kind of a people mover sort of the technology um, with wheels along the track. Um, but, we, but the technology to do the guidance and, the, and control the speed was a lot more sophisticated. Because a people mover, they're just on a constant, they're rolling at a constant speed. And so at some point in time, the vehicles slow down and bunch up. Here we had to have more control because of going off and on to the turntable, um, you know, it had to be precise. You know, you had to get in just at, at the right time as the turntable was going by. And um, so, and there were other parts of the attraction that required more um, accuracy and more um, specificity in terms of, of speed and what's going on in the scene. So that was an evolution um, a technological evolution of the people mover system, and it, and it was not without its um, issues, which was why the ride was delayed until March. Now, as you're working on that, do you work on one project at a time, or did you have other parts of Epcot Center or other other areas of the company that you were working with as well? No, I think once I got put on that project, I was on that project until opening. I might have done some little, you know, pick up pieces here and there, um, but I think once I was chosen to work on that, I worked on it all the way through. Do you have any more questions on the uh, Imagination Pavilion, or um, do you want to look at what, what happened after that? Actually, yeah, I do have, I do have one other um, question what? about the Imagination Pavilion. You talked about um, the ride itself opened a couple months after the grand opening of Epcot Center, but the other aspects of the pavilion were open. Were you involved at all in like the plotting out of Image Works or any of the like Magic Eye Theater, um, you know, any anything like that other than the ride system? Um, well, initially the entire pavilion, uh, which included other elements out in the uh, in the garden, so the the that post show area or the garden in between the Magic Eye Theater and the rest of the attraction was intended originally to be kind of the fourth act, if you will, um, with all sorts of like things you kids can explore or go into. And I think there was going to be a carousel um, in that garden. <laughs> Not a turntable. <laughs> small one, though. <laughs> um, and there was, I think, even another smaller, at one point early on, there was even another little theater in there. Um, so that was originally intended to be much bigger. So I had done the overall layout kind of in the big, you know, big idea phase. And then um, when we needed to cut costs, you know, um, and I think by that time I was focused on the ride, we got our architect on board and the architect kind of laid out the pavilion um, at that point. And um, 
So I'm trying to think. So I don't think I laid out Imageworks as it is now. I as a DVC player. No. <laughs> um, at some point, I kind of bowed out of Imageworks. Although then I ended up helping Skip Lang art direct it. Um, and then uh, right at opening, we saw that there were crowd flow issues and signage issues. And um, so I was rapidly designing graphics. So suddenly, mm -hmm. I was a graphic artist, and I was doing graphics. Um, and I was I was in Florida, so I had been in Florida for a year, and now the attraction's not open, and so I'm staying in Florida now, <laughs> and I'm doing graphics for the image works while because the attraction is for the most part finished, except that the vehicles aren't working. Oh, well, the rock people just needed more. They needed, um, they needed the expertise that was focused elsewhere on Spaceship Earth. And um, I think it was pretty much focused on Spaceship Earth. So um, it was waiting for, spaceship, for, for issues with Spaceship Earth to be kind of ironed out. And then those right engineers um, turned their attention over to imagination. And so that whole process took six months. Mm -hmm. until it was, so that's when I was working on crowd flow issues and, and these graphic issues. And I may have been working on other issues, uh, similar issues for other um, pavilions. I believe I was working on some issues for the land pavilion, similar kinds of crowd flow issues. Um, yeah, so I was doing a lot of graphics and it didn't really occur to me until recently. Very ironic. This is one of the most ironic things I can possibly think of. Um, I've been kind of late to get on board the Photoshop bandwagon. Um, I, I work in Illustrator and I work in Keynote, but something is very counterintuitive to me about Photoshop. And so I'm always cursing Photoshop and I'm always damning Photoshop. <laughs> and I, and I, now I've kind of finally tackled it, but it took really a long time to figure out Photoshop for me. It's just not intuitive. And um, I'm just like, you know, I could do a better job of coming up with a system that is that doesn't require explanation. <laughs> and um, so, again, I'm always kind of like putting them down and getting in fights with people about it's just you or, you know. <laughs> and then when I was going through all of this stuff in my files, I came up on graphic for the magic palette and the magic palette was really kind of the very first public photoshop kind of um, uh, self-drawing program it was way ahead of its time it was years before photoshop was available to the public and it was very rudimentary very you know designed for uh, people on the run basically you don't have time to figure it out but you couldn't figure it out there were no instructions and so as <laughs> here you use this as simple as it was people couldn't figure it out they didn't know what they were supposed to do so i had to come up with a graphic that was easy to understand and read and use um and someone suggested well that was probably the first tutorial ever created <laughs> or wow <a> program <laughs> Maybe I don't know. What, one of the first. That's but there was a period of time where I was telling myself I would I would never get into digital drawing or anything, and um, now of course I am. But 
um, it just shows you how quickly and how far uh, you know things have come since that time. That people didn't know what to do with the wand, and they were smashing the wand into the screen, and they were um, you know they just we were replacing the wands all the time. I remember that, um, but people just didn't really know how to use it. Speaking of the first, I, I liked seeing your, um, you were like the first person to hold the Epcot ball, if you will. Yeah. I saw that photo on your Twitter account. I know, I remember I was with my um, colleagues and they were like, what in the hell are you doing? <laughs> Before people did that with the, maybe they did it with the Leaning Tower, but there wasn't so much exposure to that. And, well, you had to uh, wait a week to get your photos back. Yeah, right. So then we all did that. We all, I think... Everyone ended up um, that I was on with that group um, ended up holding the ball like that. This was a few days before, the, or maybe a week or so before the park opened. Yes, I'm always at the vanguard of all of the. <laughs> you were setting trends. You were making um, tutorials. You were. Uh, you created the first Instagram um, meme. You didn't yes. even know. That's right. Uh, so after, um, and actually, that, that, I did a follow-up question. At what point did you move from California to Florida um, to work on the attraction itself? Okay, so let's see. Um, being a little bit more precise about it, I was out there for just over a year, and I left in April. So I think I got out there around March, probably of 83. Two. So, six or seven months um, prior to the park opening, and, um, and six months post opening. But only a few okay. months okay. opening the ride. So the ride, like I said, I think it opened at, um, at the end of March. We started cycling it around February. It was interesting, it actually cycled in September. And then they identified um, what the issues, some issues that were going to make it um, impo not impossible, but impractical to open because so much other effort was needed elsewhere at Epcot. So it was just decided they were going to shut down that ride. They'd cycle it every week or so. And then um, it wasn't until about January, I think, where they kind of that started cycling it on a regular basis again. Well, that so truly really is the good stuff. It is. This has been the good stuff. Thank you for listening to Butter and Bacon. For personalized trip planning services and expertise, please contact Becca via email at Becca at AdventuresOnTheTravel.com, on Twitter at AIOT Travel, or visit our website, AdventuresOnTheTravel.com, where you can get more information, read our blog, subscribe to our newsletter, and request a quote. Let them know Butter and Bacon sent you. You can follow Butter and Bacon on Twitter at Butter and Bacon, on Instagram as Butter and Bacon Podcast, and please contact us via email at butterandbaconpodcast at gmail.com To get the good stuff delivered hot and fresh, please subscribe to Butter and Bacon in your podcast app of choice.
early part in the conceptual phase of this, we actually did not have an architect. Oh, sorry, could you start that again? Yeah. Darn phones. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. It happens, it, all the it time. happens <laughs> almost every other episode. <laughs> so, in the. Uh, and just for your listening pleasure. have joined us. Can they imagine to? Of course! Imagination is something that belongs to all of us. You mean everyone can think up new things. <laughs> That's right, Figment. And every sparkling idea can lead to even more. So many times we're stumbling in the dark and then you reach... What a spark! How are we going to use lightning? it with ghostly shivers on a stormy night and turn them into a tale of fright. Oh, oh, look, look, a rainbow. How do you use that? You paint with. Now you've got it. Wow, wow, wow. Numbers, letters, papers for writing, costumes, makeup, stages for lighting, teardrops, laughter. <laughs> what about science? Science? We'll need electron beams and crystal prisms, gyroscopes and magnetism, holy grail and bag is full. It is? Let's start making new things. Now, wait. First, we must store these ideas with the others in the dream port. Are we almost there? Oh, the dream port is never far away when you use your imagination. Come on, everybody. Let's we go. We all have sparks. Imagination. Yeah. That's how our minds create creations. <laughs> 
right at the start of everything that's new. One little spark lights up for you. Oh, boy! Imagination! Imagination! A dream can be a dream come true with just that spark in me and you. Red and gold, from autumn flowers, purple and blue, from twilight hours, green summer hills, and rainbows play a part, <laughs> a painter's brush, <laughs> a work of art. Mix red and gold, from autumn flowers, Some happy song. Such 
happy dancers. Costumes and sets. Spoofs and romances. With flashing tears and footlights all aglow. The sparks ignite. A brand new show. Some happy songs. Some happy songs. Some happy dances. Costumes and sets. Costumes and sets. Spoofs and romances. About science, Technology, like a newfound potion, allows us to marvel at mysteries of motion. Water dances where visions begin. Science reveals the life within. I'll wind this dial, and time escapes. Watch minerals change to crystal shapes. Let's look at nature at this speed. From germination, then back to seed. Skyrockets soar towards outer space. Imagine yourself in an infinite place. Oh, there are so many places to dream about. We can visit worlds that were, that could be. And those of fantasy and reality. 
I bet I can use imagination to discover all kinds of new things. Of course. It's your key to unlock the hidden wonders of our world. A dream come true with just one spark in me and you. We all have sparks. Imagination. That's how our minds create creations. Oh, they can make our wildest dreams come true. Those little sparks in me and you.